Now for the sermon, Mr. Curtis Whiteley. For the pilgrims, it was freedom of worship. For the founding fathers, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For the huddled masses, it was opportunity, equality, freedom. Today, it's more, much more. Today, the American dream means more money, more house, more car, more power, more fame, more stuff. Instant, on-demand, drive-through, microwavable, downloadable, 1,000 channels, 10,000 songs, happiness in the aisles of a megastore, fulfillment in four easy payments, purpose in a bank account, a barcode, a magnetic strip, more me, supersized, satisfied, and served. Self-centered, self-focused, that's the new American dream. So what is a trader? Traders have seen the puppet strings. They've glimpsed the chronic disappointment behind the glittering curtain of greed and consumerism. Traders sense that the road to success may not end as advertised. Traders see through the empty promises and greedy deception of the marketing machine. Traders know that as they lay dying, they won't be wishing for shinier toys, more square footage, a better title on their business card. Traders don't need more stuff to make them happy. They are owned by material things. Traders understand that there is a bigger world. They've seen the face of need, of want, of disease, of hopelessness. They can't turn away anymore. They can't hide in front of the TV. They can't work, play, or party harder to block it out. They can't ignore it anymore. Traders want to make a difference. Traders have to make a difference. Traders have resources, time, money, ideas, skills, creativity, passion. Traders realize that God gave them these resources for a reason. To pick up their cross and follow Christ. To be the good Samaritan. To obey the Great Commission. A trader looks for a place to help. Maybe next door. Maybe across town. Maybe on the other side of the world. A trader trades in one night a week to help the homeless. A trader trades in summer vacation to train graphic designers in Central Asia. A trader trades in the pursuit of the American dream for a world that desperately needs Christ. Are you a trader? Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today. I'd just like to take the, the time here in, my, in the beginning today just to, to ask everyone to join with me, if you would, to give a special applause for the people who have worked so tirelessly to help put on this music program that we've gotten to enjoy. Excuse me, sorry about that little. We good? All right. Sorry about that. But anyway, I'd like everyone just to kind of help me give an applause to these people who give their time so sacrificially. And also not to forget, not just the ones who, you know, give their time every Thursday evening and, and thinking about, you know, all of us have such busy schedules. We also have two, or actually three, excuse me, three people there in the back that work double overtime to satisfy people like me getting up here and speaking and the singers with all our technological things that we throw at them and how much they help us to try to enhance our church services. Their, uh, their services are uh, just absolutely amazing. And uh, if, yeah, let's go ahead and give a hand for them. Well, it, the video today that I showed, I thought it was a kind of 
appropriate for what I'm speaking about. It's probably, no one is probably surprised that what I'm talking about today has to do with wealth. We hear that word a lot, don't we? The American dream. You know, it's all about the American dream. And, you know, times like this, you know, we're about two and a half months away from, from an election. And you hear that word thrown around a lot. You hear the word, you know, sharing of wealth. Or you hear, you know, people talking about, uh, you know, big business, small business, capitalism, those things, those words come up. And people discuss, you know, what they think America is all about. You know, what the whole purpose of being an American Okay, what our founding fathers dreamed of for me and you. And you saw that video about how you in the beginning, and we, do, we did have some founding fathers, and they were, you know, they were bent on freedom, on to providing a government where me and you could come and make a decision ourselves about what religion we were, or what denomination affiliation we were. Or... Not telling us, not letting the government tell us, you know, where we're going to live or what we're going to do every day or what job we're going to have. And today I think that it's really telling in our society that much of our society is wrapped up in something that Jesus himself spoke about so much. That's the lust of wealth. The lust of wealth. In fact, according to Christian author Randy Alcorn in his book Money, Possession, and Eternity, Jesus spent more than 15% of his words in the New Testament on money and possessions. That's quite a bit. Out of all the things that Jesus spoke about, and he spoke about many things, 15% of that had to, had to do with money, had to do with wealth, had to do with materialism. And today I think that, that we could all agree in our society that there's probably, for us as Christians, no greater distraction than stuff. Wealth, money, but not just money, anything, as we'll see, that we treasure, anything that we treasure over our calling, over the treasures of God. That video mentioned the marketing machine, and every day, every one of us are inundated, whether we're driving on the road, whether we're watching the news or TV or whatever. We're inundated with the marketing system that's always trying to tell us, you know, you, you should have this. You're worth it. And I just kind of listed a few popular slogans of some of our most popular companies in America. Sprite. Obey your thirst. Obey your desires. Xbox. Life is short. Play more. Burger King, come on, have it your way. And the last one, L'Oreal, I think it's a makeup brand. Come on, because you're worth it. And this is what we hear all the time. No matter what company it is, no matter what business it is, it always is that go after your lusts. Seek pleasure in material things. This will satisfy you. This will cure all your problems. And today I want to look at something that Jesus had to say about all this. About how, how, what he had to say about wealth. But the thing about it is, is that we have to remember that 
Jesus isn't just talking to rich people. Wealth can ensnare the rich and the poor. I mean, we can think about some popular things that we say in society. And, we, and it just can show you how much, how much we deify the dollar bill. Or how much we deify things. The almighty dollar. Anyone ever heard of that? Deifying the dollar bill. Or wealth. Or money. Or, another one that I really like. Everyone has their price. You just bump that price up there, you can negotiate anything from anybody. So today, I'd like us to turn to Matthew, the sixth chapter. We're going to break in. Jesus spent three chapters in one sermon. This is Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're going to look at a passage in verse 6. And we're going to pick it up in verse 19. But before I start, I just want to say that I have three points today. Three points. You can actually break up these points in Matthews 19 through 21, 22 and 23, and 24. Jesus almost talks as if he's in Proverbs, or if he's speaking Proverbs here. And let's just go ahead and read this, and then I'll bring out the three points. But in Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 19, he just got done speaking about not being focused on our external looks. He talked about fasting. He talked about doing good deeds, doing them in secret where your Father in heaven will reward you in the open. He talked about not worrying about going around and saying, look at me, look how righteous I am, look how much money I give to these poor people. Because it's not about the way we look, it's about our pure heart and doing things, not for our glory, but for the glory of God. And speaking on this same line of thought, after this, in verse 19, Jesus opens up and says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, and your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In verse 24, the last thing he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So the first point I want to look at today, the first thing that I think Jesus says in the first two, three, chapter, or three scriptures in verses 19 through 21 is that we have to make sure our treasures are heavenly. We have to make sure that our treasures are heavenly. And I have three reasons why Jesus says this. And he tells us why we need to make sure our treasures are heavenly. Now just first, we just kind of need to ask ourselves, what, you know, the way we use that word treasure today if we were to look at the English definition of treasure, we could look at all different kinds of definitions. One of them could be, according to dictionary.com, wealth or riches stored or accumulated, especially in the form of precious metals, monies, or jewels. Another definition could be anything greatly valued or highly prized. And then the Greek is the same thing. That which is of utmost value to us. What do we highly prize? Just to look at some things that many people highly value in this life. 
possessions, money, things that people want more of, more car, more cell phone, more computer, more house, more bank account, more 401k, more titles behind our names, more technology, more notoriety. These are all things that many people in our society, that is, it's almost like it defines who they are. But there's a caution that needs to be made here. And the caution is, is that the Bible does not holistically condemn wealth in all circumstances. The Bible does speak positively about money and being a good Christian, godly steward of money. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, you have to turn there, charges us with the responsibility to provide for our families. God compliments, God encourages us, God charges and commends us when we work hard and we work for money and we work to provide for ourselves and our families. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8, commends those who are wise and plan for their future. So the Bible does commend us when we are smart and we are good stewards. But the problem is, and in the Greek it shows this, it talks about accumulating treasures on earth for ourselves. There's a selfishness element here. And I just want to kind of share with you a few other things that the Bible has to say that are negative about wealth. This destruction that wealth can bring upon not just unbelievers, but Christians alike. 1 Timothy 6, verse 1 through 10 tells us that we must be content with the things of God has given us and avoid the love of money. And we've heard that before, that, the, that money is the root of all kinds of evil, which is a snare that is so harmful and destructive that even Paul said to Timothy that even some of this, some people in his day had been led away from the faith because of it. Matthew 19, verse 16 through 26, the story of the young rich ruler that came to Jesus. And we all remember this story and all scholars alike agree what was going on here. Jesus was asked, what can I do for eternal life? And Jesus told the man that he needed to give up his treasures, give up those possessions, give up all those things. The man said that he had kept all these commandments from his youth, but Jesus said, but you lack one thing. You need to give all that up, your possessions, and give it to the poor and follow me. And that man, what happened? He walks away greatly sorrowful because he's not willing to give up those things to follow Christ. Now, is this saying that all of us, what we're supposed to do is just give up everything we own, give it to the poor, and just follow Christ? No, what it's saying is this. If you want to follow me, I have to be first. If you want to follow me, I have to be the center of your heart, not that. And Jesus goes on to say about how difficult it was for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Bible gives us three reasons right here specifically with Jesus. Why we are not to look to treasures on earth. Why we shouldn't accumulate things selfishly for ourselves on earth. The first reason is because physical treasures are not reliable. They are easily taken away. Jesus says now is the time to switch from earthly to heavenly. Many other translations render the phrase store up or to accumulate, like I just mentioned, speaking of the idea of someone hoarding things for their own treasure, for their own lust. Jesus tells us why. Jesus' day, 
if we want to look back in the historical context, some of the most prized possessions of his day were clothing and money and food. If you remember when Jesus was crucified, he was being on that cross, and the people who were crucifying him, those Roman soldiers, what were they doing? They were casting lots for his garment, those garments that were put on him. Because clothes were very, very, very worth a lot, had a high value back in these days. But Jesus says these things are easily destroyed. He mentions these treasures being eaten away by moths. And some of you, this is not as prevalent today, maybe some of you still do this. Does anyone ever remember or still use something called mothballs? If you don't know what mothballs are, because I actually had to look it up, mothballs were little balls that people would put in cabinets and closets to keep out moths from clothes because those moths, the larvae in them, will eat away at clothes and destroy them. So look how small of a creature. Something so small, these treasures that people are building up, and Jesus is saying, that's so foolish. Look, something as small as a gnat, or excuse me, a moth, can destroy it. He also talks about things rusting, being ate, ate away by mildew or weatherly elements. Things are so easily destroyed. Things wear out. Things get damaged. Things go old and pass away. And even those things that don't get destroyed, even those things that you know, aren't rusted or aren't you know, ate by moths, they can be stolen. Someone can break into your house today and steal your TV, your computer, anything they want. We can have an alarm system. Those things can slow down. Maybe people, in the amount of things people steal, but they won't stop them completely. Jesus is saying that why are you putting your treasures, why are you laying up for store and focusing on these things that are so easily by little things taken away? I don't think there's a greater example of someone who knows about what it's like to have wealth and at the end, looking back at his life, what it all meant, than Solomon. You know, King Solomon was king over Israel of Israel's most powerful and prosperous times. He was that last king after his father David died of that united kingdom of Israel. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings, the 10th chapter, verse 23, that Solomon surpassed all the kings in the earth in riches and wisdom. His throne, his drinking utensils, they were all made of pure gold. But later in his life, Solomon looked back at all of this and realized how temporary these things were. In fact, he uses the word meaningless. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10 and 11, he says, I did not restrain myself from getting whatever I wanted. I did not deny myself anything that would bring me pleasure. So all my accomplishments gave me joy. This was my reward for all my effort. Yet when I reflected on everything I had accomplished... And on all the effort that I had expended to accomplish it, I concluded all these achievements and possessions are ultimately profitless. Like chasing the wind, there is nothing gained from them on earth. And later in verse, chapter 5, verse 13 and 15, he says, Here is a misfortune on earth that I have seen, wealth hoarded by its owner to his own misery. Then that wealth was lost through bad luck. And although he fathered a son, he has nothing left to give him. But just as he came forth from his mother's womb, naked will he return as he came. And he will take nothing to his hand that he carry away from his toil. This is another misfortune. Just as he came, so will he go. What did he gain from toiling for the wind? 
Surely he ate in darkness every day of his life, and he suffered greatly with sickness and anger. I think Solomon is someone in a position to talk about what it's like to have wealth. What it's like to have all these things and, and, and how temporary. And as he uses so often in, in Ecclesiastes, how meaningless they are. Another reason that Jesus says that we shouldn't store up treasures on earth, but rather in heaven, is because heavenly treasures are safe, protected, and eternal. Don't worry about those earthly treasures, Jesus says, but put your faith, put your heart on those that are heavenly. Not all treasures were condemned by Jesus, but heavenly treasures is what he's telling us to switch to. And we have to ask the question, what are some heavenly treasures? What is it we could look at and see what Jesus is talking about? I think we could look at many different situations, many different scriptures. We could go around the room right now and probably share with each other maybe passages or things that they have found true. We can look at prayer. We can look at just glorifying God and focusing on His goal. But I think a great example is right here in the same section in which Jesus was talking. At the very beginning of the sermon, just a chapter over in verse 5, Jesus presents in 5, verse 3 through 12, what is popularly known as the Beatitudes. And with these Beatitudes, Jesus shows a reward for each one of these attitudes. In verse 3 it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And he goes on, talking about someone who's in a pure heart. They shall see God. The peacemakers shall be called sons of God. We can look at it and go down all, all the way through. And if we just listen to some of the rewards, they include the kingdom of heaven. Is one of our treasures in our heart the kingdom of heaven? Do we live like that's truthful? Comfort, and it's not talking about the comfort of this world, but it's talking about comfort in God. The earth, satisfaction, and that satisfaction is related to thirsting for righteousness. Being filled with righteousness. Mercy, seeing God. Seeing God is one of the rewards. The pure in heart shall see God. Other scriptures we see, we see that it says that, for we shall see Him because we will be like Him. Another one, which I think is probably one of the most important, one of the most absolute privileged rewards, being called the sons of God, or better yet, the children of God. This is all inclusive in the language. It's children. It's women and men. Being called the children of God. Do we value being called the children of God? And number nine, a great reward in heaven, if we just look. A great reward in heaven. And these treasures Jesus spoke of are rewards that are eternal. They're not going to rot away. They're not going to rust. Moths can't get to them. But they're locked up with God. They're safe. And this is why Jesus says we need to put our faith or put our treasure, set our heart on these things. These treasures are eternal and can be manifested in several ways. And we can just think of some ways that we can show ourselves as evidenced that we really truly treasure these things. One of them is good works. It's a dirty word in some circles, but the Bible talks a lot about our good works. And good works isn't about obtaining something for our own selfish gain. 
It's about obtaining and increasing God's glory, not us. Devotion of your time to people in need. Some of us don't have a lot of money, but it doesn't mean that we're not wealthy in an area. Maybe we're wealthy with our time. Maybe we have a lot of time. Maybe we're wealthy with our gifts. Maybe we have talents that we could share for the glory of God. Sharing the gospel and love of Christ with others. Seeking God's goal and not our own at every opportunity. Seeking justice, peace, truth, and most of all, using the gifts that God has given us to bring the light of Christ to the world. These are things that can show the evidence that we do value and treasure Christ and God and heavenly treasures. The next reason, the last one, the last reason that Jesus says that we shouldn't put our faith in earthly treasures is because the heart reveals what we prize most. The heart or a heavenly heart results in a heavenly light and a heavenly life. Because the heart defines who we are, does it not? As the Expositor's Bible Commentary says, the heart is the center of the personality embracing mind, emotions, and will. The heart is the engine of the way we think, what we do. That a heart will determine our actions. It will determine our direction. It will determine what we will do. And we must live a life that evidences that our treasure is in heaven and not on earth. Let's read again those next two scriptures and look to our next point. Verse 22 through 23 says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? How great is the darkness? This next point I want to bring out is that we need to make sure that we're setting our eyes on the right path. And we're going to bring out the idea of the single vision. The single vision. Jesus tells us that the eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, what we use to see the light, to be able to see our path is our eye. That's how we receive light. That's how we receive our vision. Through our eyes we can see the light and therefore we can stay on the right path. And Jesus brings out this idea of what? This, this healthy eye versus a, a deteriorated eye. Or a, a malfunctioning eye. In Jesus' day, this concept of good versus bad eye had the idea of devotion. Devotion. A deteriorated eye. A deteriorated eye versus a healthy eye. Notice how Jesus doesn't say the eyes are the lamp of the body. But he uses it in the singular way, in the singular form. He says the eye, singular. And in this culture, it was a common concept. Single vision, the single eye, brought out the idea of undivided loyalty. And we can think about it this way. It shows that a person's not looking at one thing with one eye and something else with another. Are our eyes fixed on Jesus? And we're going to look at a passage that says it should be here in a minute. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. You know, what do we value? What do we value? A disease or bad eye could mean a stingy one. One that's not willing to give up the double path. 
that maybe a person's walking on. Maybe a person's trying to follow God, but still wants that one foot in the world. You know, we're Christians, and you know, we, we can look back to our baptism, and we've been, you know, we understand the truth, but these scriptures, these situations still claw at us on a daily basis. This world, everything about it, is going to try to stray us from that path. The eye in Proverbs 28, 22 says, A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. So Jesus is talking about wealth. He's talking about wealth in many ways. It's not just that rich people read these scriptures and us who are poor don't have to worry about them. But it's talking about all of us. All of us have some form of wealth that we have. And we can make a decision on who we follow more. We can make a decision about where our vision is. We can make a decision and make a reflection about where our heart is. A healthy eye is fixed on the things of God. In Jesus' day, many of the t contemporaries expressed this idea with righteousness. In Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 2, we've heard this passage many times before. But it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and, and the author of Hebrews here has just got done talking about all the men and women of faith of old. Abraham, Noah, David, all these people, Samuel, all these people who gave up things in their lives and decided that they would follow after God. You know, I'm reminded about what Ron talked about last week in his split sermon. Talking about Abraham. And I teach world history. And it's the beginning of the school year. And I was kind of thinking about that this past week, about what Ron spoke. Because the beginning of the school year, we're at the very beginning of time. And a lot of things we're talking about is um, the area in which Abraham grew up in. And I was thinking about how life was so different back then. You know, life was so different to the point where, you know, you didn't, you know, when you moved somewhere, you didn't get on TV and check it out. You didn't have a chamber of commerce for the land of Canaan about all the attractions that were there waiting for him. He knew nothing about it. Okay? They did, a lot of these civilizations did not intermingle with each other for many years. And I was just thinking about what Ron said, about how you hear this man named Abram. And he's asked to give up all these things. And, you know, sometimes we might read over that scripture, and it doesn't seem like a big deal to us. Giving up everything, you know, maybe he, you know, we, we've talked about how, you know, later in life we see that, that Abraham was blessed. You know, he was financially very secure, able to buy burial plots and stuff like that, plots of land. But we never really, maybe sometimes, at least me, I'll put myself in this category, sometimes I forget to think about how difficult it might have been just to, you know, leave everything you know. And by yourself, and of course his wife was wisdom, his dad was with him, and his nephew. But the comfort of where you grew up, and the comfort of, you know, all the things that are familiar to you, and giving that up, and following and obeying God. And that's one of the things that Hebrews brings out. Leading up to our greatest thing, the greatest person we look to, there, and it says, let us lay aside every weight, there in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse 1 and 2, in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
I think it's safe to say some of the sins that ensnare us, some of those weights sometimes can be this world or, or not just the world, not just that we go around and say, hey, you know, everything's bad, we've got to you know, be hermits, we don't want to, you know, you know kind of like we heard, you know, making judgment, you know, they're sinners, you know, you know, what they do over there, you know, man, I'm glad I'm not like that. You know, we embrace the world in the way God wants us to embrace the world with the goal of spreading his knowledge and his glory. But we don't embrace the things of the world. The things of the world. But verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And when you put your faith, and you put your treasures in heavenly treasures, that's where it gets to go. Jesus is on the throne of God right now. He's at the right hand of God. And there's no other place that's more secure than right there. The idea leads into our last point. Our last point. What Jesus says in our last main point, which says, make your master one. Verse 24. Just going to read that again. Verse 24, and let Brian slow down a little bit. Let him catch up. Verse 24 says, no one, woman, child, man, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And some of you guys might have a translation that says mammon. That Greek root word. And we're going to look at that here in a minute. So this last main point of what Jesus says is that we need to make sure that we are making our master one. Just like we have that single vision. Just like we've exchanged, and for the purposes that we discussed, the earthly way of thinking, the earthly treasures for the heavenly treasures. Now we have to wrap this all up and do this by making sure that our master is one. Jesus simply tells us, in order for us to serve God, he must be the center of our lives. Now this idea of master is interesting because it brings out, in Jesus' day, not as prevalent in our day, the idea of a slave. Both God and money are personified into slave owners. You know, some people in Christianity and some of us, sometimes we can get in the habit of thinking that somehow, you know, God's not our master, you know, he's our employer. You know, maybe, you know, we work for him sometimes, but, you know, we got the weekends off, or in our case, we got, you know, Sunday off and then, you know, maybe certain portions during the week. But that's not what God is to be. God is not our employer. God is to be like Paul. And so many of the apostles called him, and Paul addressed himself, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A servant of God. Do we serve God? Or do we try to just check in 8 to 5? Or is God not even an employer? Is he just a hobby? You know, Monday through Friday we do what we want, and then on the weekend we do our hobby, we go to church. That's kind of a hobby. It's not even an employer. So we have to ask ourselves that, that. Is Jesus our master? A person cannot have two slave owners because he will prefer the one over the other. And this is something, you know, the idea of slavery is that they have one master. And God demands not a little devotion, not partial devotion, but complete devotion. Our full devotion. And this idea plays on the first two things that Jesus brought out. We either focus on our heavenly treasures or earthly temporal treasures. 
We either have a single eye on God's path, or we have a double vision bent on the path of possessions and materialism. Possessions and materialism. We have to ask ourselves the question, where's our treasure and where's our vision? That's constantly kind of the theme of this message, as you could probably tell. It's been repeated several times. But the last reason, I think, that we could say in this last point, the last reason that we need to make sure that our master is one, that we're serving God, is because to serve God requires our undivided reliance. To serve God requires our undivided reliance. And the last thing I want to discuss is about money. You know, money is not just something that people uh, struggle over because it brings pride, it brings, you know, uh, gives you things. But a lot of times people struggle over money over what Jesus will start talking about after these passages because of anxiety. Money seems to be, in this world, a cure for that anxiety that maybe we get. Maybe we're scared that we're not going to be able to make it this month. Maybe we're backed up on our bills or things are you know, slowing down at work, and we're scared that maybe, maybe you'll walk in one day and be told to clean out your desk. Money seems to be something that people like to rely on as if it'll take care of them. It's the idea of being a slave still, because a slave could rely on that master to give them what they needed at least to live, to be able to go on, to provide for them. Especially in Bible times, we'll see that there's even times where slaves, they had a choice to either, you know, walk free or stay with their master. And a lot of times they would choose to walk with their master. Why? Because that master would provide for them. They wouldn't be on their own. They didn't have to worry about those things. Just like children. And being, you know, fairly, you know, still a few years, you know, outside of my parents' house. It's understandable. You start realizing there's a totally different world. You know, for me, you know, you, you, you know, a lot of kids these days, you take kind of slow steps out from getting from your parents' wings, so to speak. You kind of get out there in that real world, especially when you have a child. Uh, and many of you know that a lot more than me. I know that for about five months or seven months now. It's, it's a totally different world. And it just kind of pulls on you just a little bit more to be tempted to start, you know, maybe deifying that Almighty dollar. And then maybe that's the key. That'll take care of it. More money. More things. More stuff. I think a few years ago, you could talk to people that felt like that. And unfortunately, some things happened in our country that made them realize that even that is not something that can be relied on. 401ks lost. Retirement's gone. Stock market crashes, recessions, all these things happen. And when the time comes, we have to ask ourselves, where's our anchor? Is our anchor on that bank, on that broker that you discuss things with and where you put your investments? Was your anchor in your job? Is your anchor maybe in your own bank account? Your savings, those are all good things when they're done in godly ways. But they always have to be remembered that they are just things and that they can be taken away very easily. That we are to be good stewards of our finances, good stewards of our wealth. 
but we cannot rely on it. And this word mammon. And Daniel Doriani, he's a kind of a New Testament scholar who wrote a book called The Sermon on the Mount, The Character of a Disciple, translates this word as a trusting thing, mammon, because it comes from a root word that brings out the idea of something which you put confidence in, mammon, or that which one, something that which one trusts in. The Bible says much about people who trust in riches. In fact, Proverbs, the 30th chapter, verses 8 through 9, this is even in Hosea 13, chapter verse 6, warns us that riches can make us forget about God. Either riches can make us forget about God. And as Paul said to Timothy, even those in the faith have walked away because of riches. You start forgetting who, what truly supports you. And I personally think that what it is, is even more than worshiping money itself. I think when you right, really just get down to it, it's the worship of not money, but ourself. It's the worship of self, of pleasure, of desire, of things that are temporary, things that will fall away, things that can be taken away as such as small little creatures that as a moth, as Jesus says. So, as I conclude here today, I'd just like to ask the question, as we looked at that introduction in that video, we looked at that American dream, and at the very end of that video, it talks about the trader. Essentially, it's someone who trades in that American dream to start serving God instead of self, instead of wealth, instead of earthly treasures. Thinking of Abraham, who traded in his life in Ur to follow and obey God. Or about John or James or Peter or Andrew, who traded their fishing business in to follow Jesus and become not fishers of fish, but fishers of men. Or about all of those early Christians in Acts, such as the Apostle Paul, giving up that prestige that he had as a Pharisee, living in the, you know, the prestige of being in the Sanhedrin, a scholar, gave that all up. And as he says, he calls it pretty much a dirty word compared to the glory in Christ, according to what he received in Christ. So we have to ask ourselves here today to reflect about the treasures of our hearts. The treasures of our hearts. What is stored up in the cupboards of our hearts? If we looked in our hearts, what would we find? Would we find mothballs? Would we find things that pass away? The heart is the doorway that we look to to see what we value. The heart is the center of our whole entire being. It drives at what we do. It determines our thoughts. It determines our actions. Is our cupboard full of perishable, temporary, or earthly items? Does the earthly outweigh the heavenly in our heart? What do our physical and spiritual bank statements say about what we value? And you can just look, you know, something I've discussed with the, the kids in my classes that have always asked me the question, uh, for several weeks now, 
How do we know about these people in history that we don't even have any records about them? There's nothing written down. It's before writing took place. How do we come to that? Well, you'd be really surprised, but they've been able to discover a lot about people just by things they left behind, things that they own. You ever thought about just looking at your bank statement and what that says about you? And it's just something we can look at. Where we put our time? You ever thought about looking in your trash can to see, you know, if it says anything about us? What about our spiritual bank statement? What does it say? Those are the questions we have to ask ourselves. Who or what has our devotion? Who or what has our devotion? And as we leave here today, I just want us to remember what Jesus said. Let us remember how we're unreliable, easily destroyed, and the temporary things that this earth has to offer us. Let us remember the logical choice that Jesus says. Because Jesus was just being logical. He was saying, that's silly. Okay, that's earthly. This is heavenly. Which one is safer? Which one is safer? Well, of course, the one in heaven is safer. Which is the safe, safest place to put your treasures? There's no other place that's safer than the footsteps of Jesus himself. And this treasure that we put in our heart will return a profit that will be so far outweighed compared to any tangible thing that we have on this earth. And best of all, best of all, we take it with us. We take it with us into God's soon coming kingdom. So as we leave here today, I just want to leave you with this. Let us just reflect on the treasures of the heart. 